Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. They were engaged, but not married, when Mary received a divine revelation, a proclamation from an angel that she would give birth to the Son of God, the Messiah. Later, it was confirmed in a dream to Joseph. Uh, Needless to say that this event and those to follow were unexpected. And that's what we have been looking at in this Advent 2020 series. We've been looking and reflecting on a handful of biblical characters and their stories of unexpected events and how God met them in the waiting when their plans fell apart. We've seen how God meets us where we are and he surprises us with his mercy, grace, and love. He didn't abandon Abraham and Sarah. He didn't abandon Joseph or Job, but he kept his promises, which he will do for us as well if we too will live by faith. And once again, that's what we're going to see in this final message of the series this Sunday before Christmas. We're going to look at the story of Mary and Joseph and then reflect on what their story teaches us about God, about ourselves, and about how we should live. And I think it's appropriate that we end our series here. Not just because Christmas is a few days away, but also because it's my final sermon of the year. A year that has been full of trials, challenges, disappointments, and for some of us, despair. Our focus this morning is perfect because Mary and Joseph's story invites us into what they experienced leading up to the first Christmas. As we'll see, they experienced hope amid despair, light in the midst of darkness, and faith in the face of of doubt. For the coming birth of Jesus was a time filled with great joy right alongside fear, struggle, and uncertainty about the future, which is why we need to hear this message this morning and why I'm happy to preach it. Our story begins in Luke chapter 1 verse 26. I ask that you follow along as I read and unpack this passage verse by verse. Chapter 1, verse 26, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Now, earlier we learned that Elizabeth is the wife of Zechariah, who's a priest in the temple. And every so often he goes up to the temple to do his priestly duty. And when he was there, uh, Gabriel, an angel, uh, only two angels ever mentioned through the scripture, Michael and Gabriel, Uh, Gabriel is a messenger from God who appears to Zechariah and tells him that he and Elizabeth will have a child in their old age. Zechariah, of course, is not believing this and wants proof of it. And because of this disbelief, he loses his speech until John is born. That would be John the Baptist. And one of the things you see in this story is that there are echoes of Abraham and Sarah, the first story we looked at in this series, as well as echoes from the story of Hannah. So two older people who shouldn't be able to have children, but yet they do. Now, keep in mind that all of this happens after what we call 400 years of silence. 
without an official word from a prophet. What would seem like God is not speaking and acting, he is doing so now uh, through this story. Verse 27 says, To a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, what does this mean, pledged to be married? Mary and Joseph are betrothed to each other. Now, this Jewish practice meant that um, they were married in every way except they could not live together. Uh, they could not share intimacy together. And this was a period where the husband would go and prepare the house and get things in order. Uh, Mary would have been around 12 or 13 years old when the betrothal began. So uh, about the time that she could have children, that was when uh, women were um, married to men. Betrothal in this case would have been that the parents would have selected Joseph for her. That was the way then. So Joseph is probably around 18 years old, we suspect, because he would be of the age where he could uh, take care of a household financially. Now Joseph is, we're told, is in the line, the royal line of King David, who's the greatest king of Israel. So right away, if you know your history, you've read the Hebrew scriptures and you get to this point, you know, ah, uh, we're about to see God's promises fulfilled to Israel through the line of David, the Messiah is coming. Look at verse 28, the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Now the angel's gonna say this a couple of times, that Mary is favored, that God finds something special about her and wants to uh, bestow a blessing on her. Verse 29, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But, but look at this, so uh, Mary is greatly troubled. This, in other words, Mary was simultaneously experiencing amazement, confusion, and fear. I mean, put yourself in her shoes. This is very understandable, right? Verse 30, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Again, the angel points out that she has God's favor, that his blessings comes to those who are favored. Why is she so favored? We're going to see this as the story unfolds, the kind of person uh, that Mary is. Verse 31 says, you will conceive and give birth to a son, the angel said. You, you are to call him Jesus. Now, Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua or Yeshua in Aramaic, which means Yahweh saves. Uh, it's actually a common name at that time. Uh, so uh, an epithet would be added to distinguish this Jesus from others, which is why we know him in the Gospels as Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 32 through 33, look at that. He, he will be great, the angel said. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. The Son of the Most High, what's this about? It, this is a clear indication of his divinity and unique relationship to God. God will give him the throne of his father David and his kingdom will never end. These are all allusions to Old Testament prophecies. Verse 34, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, Mary isn't responding like Zechariah in the previous story. Uh, she's not asking for proof as Zechariah did earlier in the chapter. Instead, she simply wants understanding. She, she's confused. How, how, could this, how could this be? Um, it's, it's obvious, though, that we should see this, that Mary understood that this was something divine and something immediate. 
She said, I've never been with a man. How can this be the case? So Gabriel wasn't talking about a natural pregnancy, and so you can see why she's so troubled. The angel responds in verse 35. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, different ways son of, son of God or sons of God have been used throughout the Scripture. Here in the Gospels, it seems to take on uh, a, a, a direct um, implication of divinity. Okay, the angel's words also conjure up images of the Spirit's work in the Genesis creation accounts as the ruach, the breath, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters and, and was the creative force in the beginning. Uh, so this same Spirit will come upon Mary and do this new creation kind of work. This is not the crude pagan idea of a God coupling with a human woman, all right? This is rather a divine mystery outside the pattern of human generation. Luke wants to make this clear to his readers. God is making this possible. Okay, come on, pastor. Some folks may be thinking, uh, you really believe in the virgin birth? Uh, yes. <laughs> and real quick, uh, let me give you a, a few reasons for that. Three reasons. Number one, I believe in Genesis 1-1, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so anything beyond that, because I believe that, isn't that hard for me. <laughs> you know, if you can get past the first verse or two in the scriptures, I don't quite understand what, what, the, what the big deal is here. A, a virgin birth is nothing for God. The second thing is, and the second reason I believe this, is I recognize, as ancient Near Eastern people would have recognized, that claiming a virgin birth is scandalous, yet Matthew and Luke still tell us this story, which I believe adds to its credibility. In the same way, that resurrection would have been scandalous in, in the early church, but yet they proclaimed this message. So, uh, you, you know, this, this isn't some example of, of you know, pre-scientific, uh, naive people believing something that we know better about now. They would have understood the same thing as we understand now, that under normal circumstances, it requires a man and a woman to have a child. Yet they still proclaimed this message. Number three, scientists will actually tell you that a virgin birth is theoretically possible, as it's happened with fish and reptiles, although unlikely to happen with humans. And so I choose to believe that the Holy Spirit made it possible for Mary to conceive without Joseph's help by providing the necessary proteins and chromosomes that are needed from, from male sperm to create a male child. Therefore, for those of us in the church who confess that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary from the Apostles' Creed, we can say with confidence, and that word literally means with faith, confides, with confidence we can say that this belief does not contradict science or reason. It simply goes beyond it. For those who accept the mysterious work of the Spirit in the cosmos, this isn't a problem. So let's not worry about what people think of us for believing this sort of thing, because Mary doesn't. 
Verse 36 and 37, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, the angel said, and, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. Again, we can hear the allusion to what God did in the Abraham and Sarah story, showing that all things are possible with God. The angel wants Mary to be encouraged by God's work in Elizabeth, a relative of Mary. Verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. And folks, this is what faith looks like. It's what a faith response looks like. It's amazing, really. Mary says, I'm a servant of God. I'm a maid servant. I'm a hand servant of the living God. And here, uh, her simple acceptance not only embraces the impossibility of what the angel has promised, but she also embraces whatever cost might come to her for being a, a pregnant teen who is yet to tie the knot with Joseph. And of course, she could not have known the cost that would come later in life as her son would be unjustly condemned and crucified as the king of the Jews and who appeared to be a failed Messiah. And that's because, as we know, the Messiah would not be like what they expected. Jesus would not be a Messiah like David, a fallible king on an earthly throne. Instead, God's vision was much bigger, much better, and his plan for Messiah more cosmic. But back to Mary. Think about these words from the angel. Many in Israel longed for the Messiah, for the deliverer to come. And many young Jewish girls must have wondered, could I be the one who might give birth to the Messiah? Will he come from my womb, from my generation? You know, not every teenage girl would be able to handle this news with such poise and humility and faith. Yet Mary, an ordinary yet faithful young woman, has found favor with God. Her heart is prepared for God to do the impossible through her. Now think about it. Based on her song, the Magnificat, which follows this announcement, she knows the scripture. She keeps God's commands. She is righteous and faithful, a person of integrity and respect. She's not puffed up. She's not a narcissist. You won't find her posting selfies to attract attention. She won't be tweeting out how faithful she was and how special she must be for God to pick her. No, Mary is a virtuous young woman who's clearly secure in her identity and needs no approval from others. She doesn't need anyone to like her stuff. That's because she is grounded in her faith and only lives for the Lord. And that's why the Lord chooses her. Needless to say, it takes a special person to be able to hear this unexpected news and trust God with whatever comes next, which is what Mary did. And I'd like us to see this played out in a scene from the movie, The Nativity Story. Uh, the clip you're about to watch is of Mary coming back home to Nazareth after spending time with Elizabeth. Joseph has been waiting for Mary to return so they can be joined as husband and wife. And it doesn't take long for Joseph, Mary's parents, and the small village of Nazareth to see that Mary has returned with a baby bump. Let's watch this together. Mary! Mary's back! 
Joseph. Joseph. An angel told you this, that you would bear the son of God. Mary. Elizabeth had a baby, even in her old age. Elizabeth has a husband. No vow. Oh, you have broken every vow, Mary. Was it one of her soldiers? Was it? I have told the truth. Whether you believe is your choice, not mine. What of Joseph? Let me speak. Please. Let me speak. Seeking honor. Honor. Mary, so how am I to answer this? If I claim this child is mine, I will be lying. I will have broken a law laid down by God. I would never ask you to lie. If I say this child is not mine, they will ask what I want to do. And if I accuse you, I 
There is a will for this child, greater than my fear of what they may do. What did you think? I believe that really helps us to imagine how that scene might have played out and what must have gone through their minds. Imagine what Joseph was thinking when he hears Mary's explanation that an angel told her it was because of the Holy Spirit and that the baby would be the Messiah. In Joseph's mind, he he must be thinking that Mary is lying, maybe even crazy, and she has either been unfaithful with another man or she has been sexually assaulted maybe by one of Herod's soldiers, as Mary's father asked her about in the clip that we just saw. But regardless of what actually happened and how he must have been flooded with all kinds of thoughts and emotions, Joseph, like Mary, is a righteous, good-hearted person. And breaking from his own culture and desire for retribution, Joseph isn't concerned about his own honor here or even looking guilty. Uh, because uh, he's not going to invoke Deuteronomy 22, verses 13 through 21, which calls for stoning someone who has committed adultery. Instead, he chooses what is known as the escape clause in Deuteronomy 24 and decides to divorce her without drawing further attention to the situation. Let's take a look at what happened next in Matthew chapter 1, verses 19 through 25. It says, Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and did, did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Verse 20, But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. As we've already seen in this series, God works through dreams. God will use a dream three separate times with Joseph in the birth and childhood narratives of Jesus. And it's worth pointing out that God still speaks through dreams today. As I've said before, particularly with individuals or cultures that are open to this way of God communicating to them. And who almost expect it if God has something to say and wants to get their attention. And this definitely gets Joseph's attention. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is uh, quoting Isaiah 7 verse 14. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and he took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. And look at that. Again, like Mary, we see the righteous character in the quick submission and obedience of Joseph. Is it any wonder why God chose this couple? As soon as Joseph wakes, he instantly does the Lord's bidding. Let there be no doubt that Jesus had God-fearing parents who were serious about their faith, and they modeled it in their living. Don't miss this, folks. If you want to know what's really inside of a person, pay attention to how they respond when the unexpected happens and their faith is put to the test. Do they buckle under the pressure? Do they quit 
when things get hard? Do they slide back into apathy, self-pity, anger, and the flesh? Or do they stick to the narrow path and allow the events to strengthen their faith and trust in God and make them a better person? Are they committed to doing the right thing and to following the Lord? For Mary and Joseph, they overcome whatever the obstacles they encounter. They accept that some people will not understand, even accuse or slander them. And they believe that God's will is greater than anything the enemy may throw at them. And the enemy does come after them. You recall that in Luke 2, Caesar Augustus issues a decree for a census to be taken throughout the Roman world, forcing people back to their place of birth to register. Another reminder of the oppressive powers of the empire. And so Joseph and Mary set off for Bethlehem where Joseph was born, about 100 miles to the south. It's there that Mary will give birth, but not in a hospital. They didn't have those. And not in a family home because there were no rooms available with any of Joseph's relatives, likely due to the moving about and returns home brought on by the census. So the only space they could find was a manger where a family member or a local villager kept the animals for the night. Not quite where you'd expect the God of the universe to be born in human flesh. And as a sign of God's grace and a gift of affirmation to Mary and Joseph, as well as the inclusion of the lowly, the poor, and the anxious, shepherds come by invitation of the angels to see what God has done. Heaven and earth rejoices at how God has done the unexpected and entered into his own creation through the birth of Christ. But as I said, the enemy comes up against them seeking to stop God's redemptive plan. Sometime later after Jesus was born, while Mary and Joseph were still in Bethlehem, magi who were Gentile astrologers from the east that watched the skies for signs that might help them discern present and future events, often referred to as wise men, they followed a star which they believed was an indication that a king was born. It's most likely that what they witnessed uh, was the aligning of two planets, much like what is happening tomorrow with Jupiter and Saturn. So get out your telescopes. So the Magi connect this celestial event to the prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures. We're not sure why exactly, but they do. And so they head to Jerusalem in Judea. And once they arrive, they go straight to Herod's palace looking for this newborn king. But they soon realize that not only has there not been a royal birth there, but they have also just alerted a really paranoid and brutal king that he may have a viable threat to his throne. An infant, a threat, you might ask? Well, remember that this guy had his own mother and sons killed because he felt they threatened his rule. In fact, it was recorded that Caesar Augustus once quipped that he would rather be Herod's pig than his son. You don't want to mess around with this guy. He's bad news. But you know this because you know what happens next. Herod gets wind that the Magi found the child just south of the city in Bethlehem, but they're not coming back to give him any information. They, of course, didn't believe him when he said, come back and tell me where he is so that I can worship him too. So Herod does the unthinkable. He orders that all the firstborn boys of Bethlehem, two years old and younger, be killed. In Herod's dark, twisted mind, this will ensure that the prophecies will never come true. Before he can issue the decree, an angel tells Joseph in a dream to wake up and flee with his family to Egypt. And I know this is a part of the story that we don't want to talk about. We don't even want to think about it. 
As he writes in his commentary on Matthew, Rodney Reeves says, This is the Christmas story. Matthew's version of our favorite holiday is hardly recognizable except for the star and the wise men. Joseph nearly divorcing Mary, Herod's diabolical ploy, the slaughter of the innocents, the flight to Egypt, waiting for the king to die. None of these things make the cover of our Christmas cards. Yet there it is in Matthew's story, in all of its glory. And we turn our eyes away from the tragedy because everyone knows Christmas is about warm feelings, nostalgic recollections, and finding serenity in the midst of our chaotic lives. But Matthew shares these details to help us to see that this is the real Christmas story, church. It's the story about God breaking into the blackest darkness of our world and experiencing it with us and proclaiming to that darkness that the light has come. Reeves writes, I find hope knowing that even when Jesus was born, there were outsiders bearing gifts, politicians trying to hold on to power, and people in Bethlehem screaming, where is God? It is strangely comforting, but it's true. For us to experience the real hope and joy of Christmas, we must be willing to see the contrast between light and darkness, between good and evil, between hope and despair, between a righteous couple and an evil king. And then we go on from there and celebrate what God has done in Christ. Amen. And finally, in closing, as we prepare our hearts for Christmas, let's consider what this story teaches us. What does this story teach us about God? It tells us that God comes close to those who are meek, humble, and righteous. Do you want to experience more of God? Do you want to know his will for your life, regardless of what comes? Well, we must be meek. We must be humble. We must be righteous. We must be like Mary and Joseph willing to follow God, willing to obey his commands. And we can see this truth in all four stories that we've looked at in Advent. The second thing, what does the story teach us about ourselves? It says that we are limited in our power, but God can do all things by his spirit. Notice how the spirit was at work in this story, at work in Mary's life. Mary said, how can this be? How will this happen? The angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Remember this, folks, in Mark 10, verse 27, Jesus, Jesus acknowledged that while some things might be impossible for us, it isn't impossible for God. Jesus said, all things are possible with God. Maybe you need to believe that this Advent, this Christmas, at the end of 2020. And then lastly, what does this story teach us about how we should live? It tells us that we must not live as defeated victims, but press on as righteous people of faith. You see, we have a choice every day. Will we live as victims or will we grow up in our faith and stand firm in the identity that God has given us? That's what our characters did in our story. That's what all of our characters have done throughout this series. 
And now let me ask you another question. What will you do in response to this year? As the wise Dr. Seuss once said, when something bad happens, you have three choices. You can either let it define you, you can let it destroy you, or you can let it strengthen you. Brothers and sisters, let's be like all of the characters that we've seen in our Advent series and all of the people of faith whose lives are recorded in Scripture and allow the Lord to use our trials this year and beyond to strengthen us and to build up our faith in Him. Because as the author of Hebrews has written, we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Let it be so. And may God increase our faith as we wait upon him to do the unexpected.